You're listening to Real Presence Live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Join the conversation on our Facebook page or on Twitter. And be sure to like and follow us for more great Catholic content. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Real Presence Live here on the Real Presence Radio Network. We're glad you're with us. We have a beautiful segment coming up here called Straight Talk, which is your opportunity to call in with questions on topics of the faith, or maybe you're just confused about some of the things that are happening in the world around us. We have a great guest, Dr. David Anders. He's host of Call to Communion. I heard on EWTN from 1 to 2 p.m. Central Time every day here on Real Presence Radio. So we'll have him take your questions. And uh, he's been traveling with us, Steve, throughout the past week if we, as we've been doing some uh, fundraising banquets. And he's still standing up, so the poor dude. Uh... <laughs> Actually, I'm, you sitting, I'm sitting down. Steve. You're sitting down. Oh, no. Oh, no. He's a, one of those literal people. No, yeah, he's, uh, he is literally sitting down with us and has been uh, for these uh, three days. You... you, you uh, f- came with us and uh, we thank you for being with us i appreciate it i'm having a great time yeah yeah that's great uh so if you hear that it's 877-795-0122 to call in for straight talk 877-795-0122 so call in your questions now for dr david anders as i was mentioning he's host of called the communion here on ewtn so he's ready for whatever question you might have and uh, whatever topic you might want to uh, throw your way, right, Dr. Anders? Well, I'll, I'll give it the old college try. <laughs> Which is better than most of us. <laughs> so 877-795-0122 is that call-in number. You can also submit your question on Facebook, and uh, you can email. You can, uh, however you would like to get your question, we'll try to get it to Dr. Anders. So, uh, Dr. Anders, uh, on this feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, maybe we should begin with this. Uh, we were talking earlier in the show about uh, how it's special for Real Presence Radio, but it's also very special for you. It, it, it's a very special day for me in my, in my life and my journey in the Catholic faith, and especially in my experience of the sacrament of matrimony. Um, because when my wife and I were married, I was not a practicing Catholic, and my wife was a fallen-away Catholic. And uh, we didn't have the best ideas about what marriage was or how it ought to function. We certainly didn't understand that marriage is a sacrament or can be a sacrament for Christians. And, uh, and we went through some pretty difficult times. I mean, some seriously difficult times. And the healing of our marriage happened in conjunction with my discovery of the Catholic faith, my entrance into the Catholic faith. And so naturally, as we began to journey into the Catholic Church, the question of the validity of our marriage got raised. And because my wife had been raised Catholic and left the church, she was technically Catholic, canonically Catholic, though we didn't understand our obligations under canon law, of course, not being Catholic. And uh, and so... Um, uh, it was some years later we actually determined we needed to have our marriage convalidated. And at the time, it was a moment of great difficulty in our relationship. And, and you know, the question was very much alive in both of our minds. Do we want to do this thing? Like, it wasn't a foregone conclusion. It wasn't just checking a box for us. It was a serious decision. Do we really want to recommit to a relationship that has become intensely painful? And... Of course, the consideration that we both had that drew us to make this decision was that we had children together. And, and, and so the determining factor was, what is the best thing for these kids? Is it it's best for them to be raised by their parents, by their mother and father, 
with the benefit of the grace that comes through the sacrament of holy matrimony. And we both made the decision, not because we thought it would bring us pleasure or happiness, but because we thought that it was the best thing for our children. Now, that actually is a great disposition to have for anyone who is struggling in marriage or even considering marriage or even having a good marriage. Because, of course, Christ tells us, the scriptures tell us, that the the sacrament of matrimony is a sacrament of self-donation, of service, of laying down myself for the sake of my spouse. It's not about my personal subjective happiness. So our marriage was convalidated on the feast of our Guadal uh, feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. But then a great thing happened. The marriage itself was healed. Hmm. And so while we weren't necessarily looking for a lot of subjective happiness, the happiness came our way anyway. And so when we, when we do God's will, this is actually what he, 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 he pays it back out to us yeah. by making our lives so much deeper and richer and, and more worth living. Mm, that's beautiful. If you're just tuning in, this is Straight Talk on Real Presence Live. Our guest this morning is Dr. David Anders, and he's taking your calls at 877-795-0122. 877-795-0122. You can also submit your questions on Facebook. Dr. Anders, we do have our first question of the morning. Uh, this person is not on the phone, uh, but it is Mary from Bismarck, North Dakota. She says, how is it interpreted that when Jesus, at the foot of the cross, says to John, behold your mother, that John represents all of us, the church? Okay, so you want to know why that, why that interpretation of the gospel is plausible, right? So, so in, in, the, in the context of the whole gospel, right, the gospel of John is a deeply symbolic book. And there are, there are wheels within wheels. There are overtones, you know, that, that emanate from the notes that are being struck. But just give you an example that's it's actually relevant to this question. You go to John chapter 2, Jesus goes to uh, a wedding, and, uh, and, uh, and he's, a, he's the world's greatest sommelier. You know, he makes a lot of good wine, and everybody has a wonderful time. Is that what the story's about? Is about how to throw a great wedding party? No. Actually, one of the things you'll notice is that he makes the wine in the ceremonial uh, jars used for rites of Jewish purification. And, and, and so allegorically, we read that text to understand this is actually a symbol, a typology of the new covenant being infused. You know, elsewhere, Christ talks about putting new wine in old wineskins. This is what that's about. This is a symbol for the wedding feast of the Lamb, the marriage of Christ to his bride, the church, and infusing the bare rites and symbols of the Old Covenant with the spiritual realities promised by the prophets. And so it's more than just a celebration of a human wedding. It's actually a typology or an allegory for the great good of the Christian church. And so we, we, we look at all of those elements of the story in that light when, when Our Lady comes and says, they don't have any wine. And Christ turns to her and says, he didn't say mom. He says, woman, woman, what to thee and to me? And then she, of course, gives the best advice she's ever given, do whatever he tells you, right? Well, what is this business of woman about? And this is, again, relevant to your question. Um, well, in Genesis chapter 3, the first proclamation of the gospel is that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, right? The prophecy of both Christ and Our Lady. And, and uh, we see this depicted allegorically, again, in Revelation chapter 12, where uh, Our Lady is depicted as the mother of all of those who believe in Christ, 
right? Revelation chapter 12. She's the woman clothed with the sun, moon, and stars who, who spiritually gives birth to all of those who would believe in Christ. And that's why the church recognizes Our Lady. It's not only the mother of God, not only the mother of Jesus, but spiritually the mother of all Christians. And she, we venerate her under that title. And so we have, to, we have to bring that allegorical understanding to all these texts of sacred scripture, especially to the Gospel of John. And again, that language of woman comes, but he could have addressed her under any title, but he uses that, that Edenic title that he, that he uh, brings into the discussion in John chapter 2, which we see fulfilled in Revelation 12, behold your mother. Hmm. And so it's the Marian element that conveys to us uh, the, uh, the, the flip side of that story is mother of whom? Mother of all Christians. And so we, we can see John in that representative uh, uh, position there because of that larger context. Mary, thanks so much for your question. There's a couple lines open for you at 877-795-0122. 877-795-0122. If you're listening online or are on your app, you can also submit a question on Facebook and uh, on our Real Presence Radio Facebook page. So that number again, 877-795-0122. You know, Dr. Andrews, as we're waiting for our next caller, um, you know, we were talking about Behold Our Mother. Uh, Can you speak to just this aspect of of having a mother in heaven and and having a, a beautiful intercessor for us before our Lord? Sure. So, uh, you know, the an integral part of being Catholic, an essential part of being Catholic, is to recognize that we don't just have a private, interior relationship with God. You know, I don't have just a personal relationship with Jesus. To be a Christian means to be a member of Christ's body, which is the Church. And, and to be able to rely upon one another in, in love and mutual intercession. I mean, that's one, this is one of the great goods of the Christian faith. And it's, in fact, through instruments, through mediators, that God brings us the grace of salvation. And so that, of course, in a very special way, we receive grace through the mediation of the priesthood, especially the Holy Eucharist and, and, uh, and, uh, and other sacraments as well. But, uh, but we also have the intercession of the saints in heaven. Revelation chapter 5 depicts... Uh, you know, these uh, the company of the saints and the angels that are offering up our prayers before God. Well, in that, in that company of the saints, none is more imminent than the one whom all generations call blessed, and that's our Blessed Mother. And she, of course, is the perfect icon of Christian discipleship. And the Annunciation, what does she say? Be it done to me according to thy word. And so there's so many wonderful aspects of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Not only do we have the intercession of the saints, but we also have the model of their holiness to look to. And, and, you know, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. None was, was more pure than the most pure Blessed Virgin Mary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember uh, as a young Catholic uh, going and talking to priests in confession about the struggles that we all have with purity of heart. And, and one in particular pointed me, gave me a prayer, actually a little prayer card, uh, to the Blessed Virgin. And I don't even remember that the prayer particularly address my concerns, but I do remember that when I began to cultivate a devotion to Our Our Lady and to, you know, believe, first of all, look to her as an icon of purity and holiness, and then also to believe that her intercession would actually be effective for me in this particular concern, it put a whole different spin on my struggles, and I I gained a hope in my Christian life that I hadn't had previously. Hmm. 
877-795-0122. If you'd like to call in and ask your question on Straight Talk for Dr. David Anders, host of Call the Communion on EWTN, we have the pleasure of having him with us this morning as he's been traveling with us uh, f- for our banquets. We had one in Aberdeen on Monday. We had one in Sioux Falls on Tuesday. And now we have t- one tonight here in Rochester. We are broadcasting live from Autoimmune Angels in Rochester. Uh, so thank you to Debbie O'Meara for opening up her her space for us to be able to broadcast from. And this is just our first broadcast of the morning as well. We will be broadcasting later today from 1 to 2 p.m., the time you're used to hearing Call to Communion. We have a special broadcast with Dr. Anders taking your calls just for you, just for you, the RPR family. So uh, if you've ever wanted to call in and and ask a question of Dr. Anders, now is the time from 1 to 2 p.m. is the time. And that number is 877-795-0122. We do have a caller... um, is not quite on the line yet. So I, I do want to ask maybe a clarification question. So we were mentioning the word intercession, right? And there can be some confusion among our Protestant brothers and sisters uh, in terms of intercession versus worshiping the, the saints. Can can you just offer a little clarification sure. of what so, we mean there? So every Protestant, every Catholic, every Christian who prays for a brother in distress understands intercession. That's just simply saying, God, please help my brother in distress, right? And that's what our relationship with the saints is like. There are older brothers and sisters in the faith, and we simply, in our prayers, ask them to obtain for us through their prayers the graces that God would, would will to send us. Now, there are two, a couple things that throw off our Protestant friends and give them pause. One of them is sometimes the form of address that Catholics use uh, is uh, is more direct than that. You know, we might say, "Mary, help us," and they and you know, Protestant might hear that and think, "Oh, well, you you're you're thinking this comes directly from mm. Mary, and like you're bypassing God in the picture." And no Catholic actually thinks that, right? That's not in our heads. We understand that this is a prayer for her intercessory power, right? And and uh, uh, but we use that form of a, of uh, of, uh, of address, and you can think of it in an analogy like this. Imagine in a medieval court, the king has all the power, right? But he's got this group of courtiers that hang about him, and and you're a supplicant, and you need something from the royal court, but you don't have any access to the king at all. Now, in our bad analogy, because we really do have direct access to God, uh, but you have a friend at court, so you go to that friend at court, and you go, "Man, help me." Man, I need I need a favor, dude. You know, yeah. <laughs> you gotta help me out here. If I'll okay, I'll present your suit in front of the king. That's same kind of help, right? Mm-hmm. It's not that courtier himself who has the power, but he's got access. Now, Saint James tells us that the prayer of a righteous man avails much. It's very powerful, and so when we appeal to the saints, like give us a hand, help us out here, we're really saying we understand that you have a profound intercessory power, that's what we're relying on. Now let me draw another distinction that's uh, that's helpful, I think. Um, at the heart of the act of worship is the act of sacrifice. Uh, St. Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, this is Romans chapter 12, offer your, body, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, this is your spiritual act of worship. To offer sacrifice is the essence of the virtue of religion. And of course, for the Catholic religion, the heart and soul of our faith, the source and summit of our faith, is in fact the holy sacrifice of the Mass. When we offer the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Son of God to God the Father in reparation for the sins of the world. If you want to see what really motivates, forms, shapes, directs, and controls the Catholic understanding of the worship of the one true God, the worship due only to God and God alone, 
It is the offering of sacrifice to him. Now, look high and low, left and right, north and south. You will not find Catholics offering sacrifice to the saints. Yeah. That's the key distinction between what constitutes worship and what's an act of veneration. We sacrifice to God alone. And the supreme, most holy, worthy sacrifice, the infinitely meritorious sacrifice of the body and blood of Christ. And if you read the texts of the liturgy of the Mass, when do the saints appear? They appear in our most holy act of worship as cooperators with us, as co-worshippers with us, making this one offering. The entire church and heaven on earth joins together in this magnificent feast of celebration and this holy sacrifice of the Mass, offering Christ in reparation for the sins of the world. You want to understand Catholic relationship to the saints, you're not going to find a better way to express it than in the heart of the Mass. Excellent. Well, we do have some calls coming in here, Dr. Anders, so uh, let's go to our uh, first one on the line. We've got Damien from Holly, Minnesota, which is uh, just east of Fargo. Damien, good morning. Damien, are you there? Hello. Hi, is uh, Damien on the line? (laughs) This is Jacinta. I don't know if Damien called as well on a different line. Okay. Uh, Jacinta, do you you have a question this morning? I do. I do have a question. Um, My question is, I have a brother who has left the church, and he's been sending some material to us, um, basically setting up scripture versus tradition. My question is, what are some suggestions you have that, uh, that I can help him understand and appreciate tradition, or maybe, Dr. Anders, what helped you to see appreciate tradition as you came into the church? Absolutely. Wonderful question. I think this is foundational. In any dialogue with a non-Catholic, you're not going to be able to come to common ground until you understand the question, how do we even answer questions about the Catholic faith or about the Christian faith? How does God want for us to come to know him? What is the basis, the foundation on which all the doctrines of Christianity rest? Did Jesus himself actually make any provision for handing on the faith? And that's the question I would put to your to, to your brother who's left the church, as he's trying to suggest that Scripture is some sort of alternate authority or higher authority than sacred tradition. I would say, well, what, what did Jesus himself actually reveal in this matter? What provision did Christ make for handing on the faith? Did Jesus direct us to the Bible or the Bible alone to answer our religious questions? And once you, once you ask the question, it's very evident the answer is no. There's no record in Revelation or history, of Christ ever directing us to the Bible as our authoritative guide for for answering questions about the Christian faith. Instead, Christ actually says to the disciples in Matthew 28, go into all nations, make disciples, and teach them everything I have commanded you, and I will be with you until the end of the age. So let's 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 break that apart for a second. Jesus, first of all, what is he what does he command the disciples to hand on? everything I have commanded you. Now, what did Christ command? And how is it recorded? And how do we know about it? Jesus never wrote a word down. Everything he did, he taught orally, or by the example of his divine person, or by the institutions that he instituted, right? The the rituals that he instituted, which we call the sacraments. That deposit of faith, Jesus' oral teaching, his lived example, and the sacraments that he founded, that's the deposit of faith that he then does what? He hands it to whom? To the disciples, to authorized individuals, to people, with the command that they teach that, a a command to teach, and a promise of divine assistance. I will be with you to the end of the age. So oral tradition, the teaching office of the apostles, 
and a promise that this institution would continue in perpetuity to the end of the age. Now, the authority he conveyed on those apostles in that teaching is profound. It's profound. He said in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, um, uh, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Whoever hears you hears me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. That's strong stuff. That's strong stuff. And that same authority of sacred tradition we find in St. Paul's epistles. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, St. Paul says, The tradition that I receive from the Lord, I hand on to you. The tradition I receive from the Lord, I hand on to you. And then he, what does he convey? He actually gives us the liturgy, which is the principal form, the major vehicle of sacred tradition. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. And so what did Christ actually reveal in this matter? He revealed to us the principle of sacred tradition and the teaching authority of the church. Now, what, what would he have to have said for the Protestant hypothesis to be true? Well, what Jesus would have had to have said would be, okay, uh, guys, uh, I want you to write 27 books. Here are their names. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, and so forth. I want you to write these books. Uh, I want you to arrange them uh, in a list, in a canon, right, an authoritative guide. And then in the future, when any of my followers have a question about the Christian faith, I want them to advert to these 27 books, plus, plus the Hebrew Scriptures that, in point of fact, I haven't yet defined which ones actually constitute the Hebrew Scriptures, so I better do that too. Here's the list of Old Testament books that you're also to adhere to. So here's your list of books, 73 books, or 66 if you're Protestant, and, uh, and I want you to look at those. But we don't find anything like that in the historical record of Jesus. You know, my own, you asked about my question, my, my own journey. The doctrine of the Bible alone began to fall apart for me when I asked myself the question, why do I believe this? Why do I, in fact, believe that the Bible alone is my sole rule of faith? And as soon as I put the question to myself, I realized it wasn't because God had told me that, but because people had told me that. My parents, my teachers, my pastors, in other words, my tradition. My Protestant tradition mm -hmm. taught me that the Bible alone was the rule of faith. And the, the, the irony should strike you, right? Well, my own tradition also said, don't rely on tradition. Well, that was the only basis I had for that, for that doctrine. I should also add that there are some profound difficulties with, with the doctrine of Sola Scriptura, even though not only is it not revealed by God, right? And that makes it logically inconsistent, incoherent, because the principle of the doctrine of Sola Scriptura, or Bible alone, is that you can't actually hold any Christian doctrine, shouldn't teach any Christian doctrine, unless it could be founded on the teaching of sacred Scripture. But the doctrine of the Bible alone is not founded on the teaching of Holy Scripture. <laughs> so it's logically inconsistent. Yeah. And then you have the problem of the canon. You've got 27 books mm -hmm. that constitute the New Testament. Well, why 27? Why not 26? Why not 30? There are different lists out there. Different Christian groups propose different lists that might constitute the canon of the Bible. Which one's right? How do you know? Well, the only way you can know is to get outside the list, because God hasn't revealed a table of contents right in the Bible itself. And, of course, we have a principle for answering that question as Catholics. It's the authority of the Church. Councils of Rome, Carthage, Hippo, and, of course, ultimately Trent defined the canon of the Bible. And we can adhere to that list with confidence because we know those councils speak with divine authority. But the Protestant doesn't have that advantage. And so he just says, well, you know, here's 27 books. I hope at least a couple of them are divinely inspired. Yeah. Just since I hope that helps, we do have a uh, few questions or a couple questions remaining. So I want to head over to Joshua from Glendon. Uh, Joshua, are you on this morning? Yes. Joshua, what is your question for Dr. Anders? Why do we receive the Holy Eucharist? 
Why do we receive the Holy Eucharist? Yes, thank you. What a wonderful question. So the Eucharist is a sacrament. Now, a sacrament is a sign or a symbol. You know, it, it represents something. But it's more than just a sign or a symbol. When Jesus gave us the sacraments, he gave us signs and symbols. But then he also said, these signs or symbols will carry with them the thing that they symbolize. Right? So when we look at the Eucharist and we hear the priest say the words of consecration, he says, this is my body. We go, oh, when I look at that Eucharist, I am to think of Christ's body, which was given for me. But guess what? Not only do I think about it, but then I actually get it too, right? So it, I can see it. That's the sign part. That's the symbol part. But when I look at it, it's actually Jesus. It's actually Jesus. And, and by receiving the Holy Eucharist, I'm receiving Christ himself. I'm receiving Christ himself. And Christ is the source of my spiritual life. Christ is what renews me in my life and brings grace into my soul and transforms me and makes me like himself. And so a really important question is, when I receive Holy Communion, when I receive the Eucharist and Communion, how should I do that? What attitude, what thoughts, what feelings should I bring to that? I should bring faith. I should believe that the words of Jesus are true. I should bring hope. I should have confidence that in doing this, I will grow in holiness and become more like him. And of course, I should bring charity. I should love Christ and seek to love my neighbor in him. And if I bring that faith, hope, and charity to my reception of Holy Communion, then the promise of Christ will, will be made real in me. And I will grow in those virtues and I will grow more like him. And it will become, as one saint said, the medicine of immortality. And I will continue to feed on Christ, grow in him, and then, and then uh, live with him in, in eternal joy. Joshua, thanks for your question. Dr. Anders, we just have a couple minutes left here. We have one last question. Sue from Sioux Falls says, As a convert, I grappled the idea of purgatory. How did you, as a fellow convert, come to terms with the teaching on purgatory? Okay, I'm going to do my best to go through this really quick, but I've got a long answer. I'll try to give you the short one. Um, so, in a nutshell... Purgatory speaks to something that Scripture says about sin and forgiveness and redemption. So it's a very biblical idea, and that is that when we sin, we, we rupture our relationship with God and other people, and we can be forgiven for that rupture. You know, I say I'm sorry, God forgives me. I say I'm sorry to my friend, and he forgives me. But it's still just for me to do something by way of reparation. If I offend my wife, for example, and she says, you know, I forgive you, I say, I'm sorry, she forgives me, it's still a good idea for me to come back and give her, you know, a box of chocolates or some flowers or something to make reparation. And the same thing holds in our relationship with God. You can see that in 2 Samuel 24 and 2 Samuel 12, two passages that teach that doctrine pretty clearly. And, uh, and so we do penance in this life for sins that we've committed to offer something to God in reparation. But what happens if you die and you haven't done penance, right? God still can forgive you, but purgatory is an opportunity to do that penance. And it also speaks to the truth that Christ teaches, that purity of heart is necessary to see God. Psalm 24 says, Only he who has pure hands and a clean heart can ascend the mountain of our Lord or stand on his holy hill. Purgatory, the word purgatory, of course, comes from purgation, right? And uh, and is an opportunity to have that that. that perfect purification that's necessary for the vision of God. We can infer purgatory from passages of Scripture, like 2 Maccabees chapter 12, where the people of God are praying for those that have passed on and died. And of course, that doesn't make any sense if they're in heaven. It doesn't make any sense if they're in hell. So it's rational to infer an intermediate state. And of course, the 
purgatory is conveyed to us as well by sacred tradition. And we find the teaching of the fathers on this matter and prayers for the saints, or, of course, or prayers for the dead, I should say, always included in the church's liturgy from the very beginning. And if tradition and scripture weren't enough for you, well, hey, we got the sacred magisterium to boot. So it's a, been proclaimed as a dogma of the church by the Council of Trent in particular. So uh, it rests on the firmest possible theological foundation and is a powerfully edifying doctrine. Sue, thanks so much for your question, and uh, that will pretty much wrap up Straight Talk here this morning. Uh, so thank you, Dr. Anders, for, for stepping in here My for pleasure. a half hour. Uh, and this is just a little bit of a preview because we are broadcasting again this afternoon from 1 to 2 p.m. Dr. David Anders taking your questions, similar to Straight Talk, uh, in this special broadcast from for a whole hour, 1 to 2 p.m. So if you didn't get a chance to call in, maybe you're trying to figure out what question to ask Dr. Anders, uh, you can call in again from 1 to 2 p.m. Central. And Sue, uh, I, I know that you, uh, you had this question, and Dr. Andrew said he had a really long answer, so maybe you want to call in and, and get a, a little bit of a longer explanation or maybe some, some things that Dr. Andrews might want to add that he didn't get to. So uh, we're going to uh, step away here for just a minute, but coming up next, Deacon Mark Creechy will be on with us to talk about how we can reach out to our loved ones who have fallen away from the faith. What's the best way to do this? How can we do this? It's something that many of us struggle with. We'll talk to him about that from the Diocese of Crookston, and then we will hear from our very own Father Kyle Metzger of the Diocese of Fargo. It's the Caller Classic event, the Priests versus Seminarians basketball game. We're looking forward to it. 26 years going now. This will be the 26th year, so we'll hear... Uh, what exciting things we have in store. So keep it right here, Real Presence Live. We're coming to you from Autoimmune Angels here in Rochester. It's the site of our fundraising banquet tonight as we uh, continue our fundraising banquet tour here with Dr. David Anders. So if you happen to be in the area and uh, you're coming out to the banquet, look forward to seeing you. Uh, and uh, enjoying a, a good evening for you. So we'll be back right after the break with much more Real Presence Live to come. Stay with us. Mm -hmm. 